0: How is your relationship with the Lord? How is your relationship with the Lord today? Maybe you're here today and you're a child and you see your parents have a relationship with the Lord. You see those in this church, other adults, maybe even other kids around you have a relationship with God maybe you're here today and and you're not a Christian and and you've been invited here by a friend and you see that the people in this church as we gather seem to have a relationship but but as you look at your own life children those of you who would not consider yourselves Christians you realize that you don't really have a relationship with the Lord and maybe you're here today and you feel very faint-hearted you feel like you are far away from God Like your prayers are hitting an iron ceiling and that that He's really not that close to you this morning. Maybe you're here and you feel very weak. You feel weak and and you're questioning. Maybe you're even questioning if God is even there. You have a lot of doubts about who God is and, and maybe even a lot of doubts about yourself. Maybe you're here today and you're idle. And you know it. You know that you have sin in your life that has hindered your relationship with God. And you've enjoyed too much dabbling in that sin and have kept God at arm's length. So how is your relationship with the Lord today? What is that relationship based on? What do you do? And what does He do? What keeps your relationship with God going? And let me press it further. How is your relationship with God hindered or helped by the people sitting around you right now? How is your relationship with God hindered or helped by the very people in this room? A few weeks ago, thanks to David, by the way, for preaching the last two weeks. It was a blessing to be able to sit under the preaching of God's word. But when we left off a few weeks ago in the book of Acts, we had gotten to a very very pivotal place in the book. We had really gotten to the very middle of the book, which is where we come to today. So I'll give you a quick recap of what has happened in the book of Acts so far in the first 14 chapters. We see very very from the outset at the very beginning, God specifically Jesus gives his disciples, these appointed what he calls apostles, messengers, a mission. That they're going to take the gospel to Jerusalem and the city where they're at, then to Samaria and Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. We see, really, that begin to unfold in chapters 2 through 7. We see the gospel go to the Jews. Those who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Those who He he revealed Himself to, He gave Himself to, He gave His word to, He gave His law to, He gave the covenant signs to. That the gospel goes to them first in chapters 2 through 7. And then we find that a persecution arises against these Jewish Christians who are converted to following Jesus. This really culminates in this man Peter's speech and then his death. And then in chapters 8 and 9 we find the conversion of this man Saul. Who eventually takes up the name Paul. And then something amazing we find happen in chapters 10 through 12. Peter, who's kind of been the de facto leader of the apostles up to this point, receives this wonderful vision of a sheep coming down out of heaven with animals on it. And God uses this vision to tell Peter to go and preach the gospel to this Italian man named Cornelius. And we begin to see something new happen in the redemption story of God. The gospel has moved now beyond God's chosen people, the Jews. And we find that God has chosen people among What are known as the Gentiles among the nations. And Jesus' mission continues on. We saw that really picked up a few weeks ago with these two guys, Paul and his friend Barnabas, the son of encouragement. As they go on what's known as their first missionary journey. They go all over this region. They go to the island of Cyprus and they jump over to the region of Galatia. And they're sharing the gospel. And they do go to the, the synagogues and they do preach to the Jews. But primarily their ministry is given to reaching the Gentile nations. So then we come to Acts 15, the chapter we're going to be looking at today. It stands as really the center part of the book of Acts. It's a central chapter, not just because of as far as like word count and chapter count, it falls right in the middle. But because of what happens in this chapter, it kind of becomes a crux where the whole book of Acts now turns. The issue in this chapter is the central issue of this new chapter. Christ-centered community. Really the question is this. The question that our text answers today, that these early Christians had to answer themselves, is this. What must one actually do to have a relationship with God? What What must one actually do to be included in God's new community? It gets back to that question I asked at the very beginning. How is your relationship with the Lord? And how are the people in this room helping or hindering that relationship? So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 15. Acts 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 35. I'm just going to read the first 21 verses here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the pew Bibles. And Acts 15 is found on page 868. 868. Once you get there, just look for that big 15. That's where I'll begin reading in a minute. Acts 15. 1 through 35, I'll read through verse 21. Well friends, once you get there, if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's word out of our honor and respect and really our submission to God's word. We stand up each and every week. We see this kind of begun in the book of Nehemiah that the people stood for the reading of the law and we continue it today because we believe that God's word is living and active. We want to submit ourselves to it. And friends, hear now the word of the Lord to us this very day from Acts 15, 1 through 21. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, Is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has been in every red. I'm sorry, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath, in the synagogues. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated, friends. I didn't get to the last section that we're going to look at this morning. I'll read that when we get near the end of the sermon. But really this section kind of breaks up into three parts. If you have the first part, the first section here where, where a conflict uh, arises in verses 1 through 5. And, and it's what you could call, point number one, the covenant controversy. The covenant controversy. That's what we find in those first five verses. And then we kind of find this debate, this discussion happened in verses 6 through 21. It's what you could call the redeemed resolution. The redeemed resolution. And in this final verses, like I said, I'll read in a little bit. In verses 22 through 35, we find an encouraging epistle. Or the encouraging epistle. Epistle is another word for letter. I had to find a word that started with E that would go along with encouraging. So I went with epistle. The encouraging epistle. So those are my three points this morning. Hopefully you got them written down. If not, I'll tell you when we get to them. But as we look at this passage, friends, my prayer would, would be that we would see that the basis of our relationship with God... Okay, think about that question I asked from the get-go, that our relationship with God, the basis, is His cleansing of our hearts. And this gives us all that we need to live in harmony with one another. I pray that that would be so as we look at this passage. Let's jump into it with point one, the covenant controversy in verses one through five. Now to understand this covenant controversy, we do need to understand the idea of covenant and if you were in adult Sunday school this morning, you have the great benefit of having Pastor David spend the entire time talking about covenants in the Bible. If you missed it, he's going to finish that talk next week at 9.30. Please be here if you can. But we do need to understand what covenants are in the Bible. I like what he said this morning in Sunday school. And I don't think it was original to him, but, but we'll give it to him for now. That, that covenants are the constitutionalizing of a relationship. They are putting the terms on a relationship. We see God doing this from the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. But we see here that that these men come down from from Judea, from, from Jerusalem in particular, and they start talking about a particular covenant sign that God has given. It is the covenant sign of circumcision. If you go back to Genesis, and we're reading through it as a church right now in our Bible reading plans, we're going to come to, really, Genesis 11 is where everything gets started. We have the Tower of Babel there. And we see that these people are trying to make a name for themselves. and are trying to be gods themselves. You really get the idea that what God did with Noah didn't didn't have a very lasting effect. In the sense that the people continually are turning in on themselves and, and worshiping themselves as God. We see it's out of those pagan people, those heathens, that God calls forth one man. The man Abraham. God calls him. And he calls him to go. He calls him to go to where he's going to lead him. Where he's going to establish him. We're going to look at this in Bible studies this week. And our children will be looking at it next week. In Sunday school. We find this began in Genesis 12. And then we find this covenant that God makes. These promises that God makes with Abraham. Are built out in chapters 15 and 17. All focusing on what God is going to do. At least until we get to Genesis 17. See, up until that point, God had been talking to Abraham about all that he was going to do. In fact, it's even God who who walks through the middle of these birds that have been cut in half. Showing that if God breaks his covenant with Abraham, that he would be accursed. God himself would be accursed. But then we get to chapter 17 and God does something brand new with Abraham. He says, actually, there's also something you need to do. There's some obedience that we need out of you here. There's a sign that you yourself have to take up. This it is the sign of circumcision. It's exactly what they bring up here. Let me read Genesis 17, 4 through 10. This is God speaking to Abraham. He says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Notice how God speaks in the, the past tense here. Like he's already done it. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, so so that's all God's going to do. God's going to do this. God's going to do this. And this is what he says to Abraham. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. How? This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. What's interesting here, as God gives the covenant sign of circumcision to Abraham, so he says it's not just for Abraham, but it's for all of Abraham's offspring after him. And he even says it twice here. This is an everlasting covenant. See, most of the time when we come to, to passages like, like we, the one we have here in Acts 15 or like what we normally find with the Pharisees talking to Jesus, we, we, we fall into uh, what, what, we, what I might call marvel uh, mindset. It's, we think good guys and bad guys, right? Jesus is the good guy. He's the superhero here. And so these must be all the villains, right? But what I want you to see here this morning, as we look at these men who come down, and then we find when they finally get to Jerusalem, that these Christians who, are, who used to be a part of the party of the Pharisees, they say the exact same thing down there in verse 5 is that these are perhaps well meaning people. They're just people who, who know their Bibles, at least to some degree. And they understand how important the covenant sign of circumcision was for God's people. The sign given by God to Abraham signified that God had made a promise. And that God was going to keep it. And that God had called Abraham forward. In fact, the, the covenant sign of circumcision shows really two things. Number one, it signified devotion to God. The fact of cutting the foreskin off shows, shows commitment It shows devotion. It shows a willingness to follow. But also notice how it is to Abraham and his family. It also has this community aspect to it. See the sign given to Abraham was a sign of being welcomed into the community. In fact if you go back and read Genesis 17 at the very end in 14. He says that anybody who doesn't keep the covenant of circumcision should be cut off. Literally, that they should be expelled from the covenant community. And so you begin to see why these Jewish Christians would expect that the Gentiles would take up the mark of circumcision. Because circumcision in their mind, the Old Testament mindset, is the mark of devotion to God and being welcomed into the community. We see that these covenant signs that we find so often in the Old Testament, express covenant promises to covenant people set apart for a covenant kingdom. Friends, what I want you to see personally here is the richness of our God. That He has been at work calling a people to Himself and He has set them apart throughout the ages. But we see there in 2 and through Four, that as these people came down, many believing that they're sent by James, who's going to come up later in his passage, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, they, to encourage them, we see that they've overstepped their authority. And they've, they've burdened the disciples there in Antioch with this question of how Gentiles are to be included. That's really the question. Believers who were Pharisees bring up the same question in verse 5. That they see circumcision and law equals membership and devotion. Without faithfulness to the covenant, there can certainly be no salvation, they say. But we see that Paul and Barnabas aren't down for this. They aren't down for this. In fact, those two words there of dissension and debate are are, are very violent words. They they are words that that mean to, to riot, to rise up against. Now, now. I don't think that Paul and Barnabas were were physically rioting here. But they were upset. They were not having any of it. We see here something that often gets missed in churches today out of a desire to be welcoming and loving. But it's that doctrine matters. What we believe about God and how He is at work matters. What we believe about being in a community together as devoted followers of Him, matters. It mattered to Paul and Barnabas. And friends, it should matter to us as well. And so what action did they decide to take? Well, they realized the issue is too big to leave to just a local discussion. And so they go to Jerusalem and they go to the apostles in particular, those who have been chosen and set apart by Jesus Christ Himself as the authority. They were, I love this. They report to others along the way. I think Luke includes this here just, just kind of as a jab. That, they, that they're reporting to all the people through all the towns and villages that they, that they go to. They're reporting to other Christians. Hey, God is at work among the Gentiles and He's saving them. And the text says that, that they were full of joy. That they brought joy to all the brothers. That already, even in the midst of this conflict, the very fact that God is saving the Gentiles causes people to be overjoyed their arrival, though, in Jerusalem is welcomed. We, as I mentioned a couple times before, the question is presented for them again. They show up and they share with the apostles and the elders what God's been doing. And here come those Pharisees again. Well, you know, but you, you know that they do need to be circumcised if they're going to be around us, right? And this issue, this issue of fellowship, really becomes central. And so we see here why this is such a big deal. Because they believe the Gentiles, the Gentiles who are once far off to be Christians, must first become like Jews. That's going to be awkward. There's a lot of circumcisions that are going to have to happen and that's going to be weird. Friends, let me ask you this before we move into to the second section. Why is this such a big deal? Why does this get included in our Bibles? Why is this the very crux of the book of Acts? Why is this something that this little church in Antioch had to take all the way back to Jerusalem? Why is this such a big deal? Because it deals with the two main aspects of our lives as followers of God. It first deals with our relationship with Him. Our relationship with Him. We should not take it lightly. They didn't take it lightly. That we would worship on His terms. We want to worship the way that God commands us to worship Him. And so if that means that we need to take up the covenant sign of circumcision, then we need to take it up. The issue here is that these Christians, despite the error that they're going to see that they're in, is that they wanted their Gentile brothers and sisters to be fully devoted to God. There seems, there's, there's no hint of, of, of nefarious themes and nefarious purposes as we see later Paul deal with in the, the book of Galatians. But it doesn't just deal with our relationship with God. The reason this is such a big deal is because it deals with our relationship with each other. And friends, I don't want you to take that lightly either. As I talk to other pastors who are, who are having to pastor and lead churches during this time and age, we should not take our unity lightly. We should not take harmony as a body of believers lightly. It is not guaranteed. But what does it mean for us to be bound together? What does it mean for us to build fellowship with each other? What does it mean for us to share life together? Well, to get us there, circumcision? No. Only the covenant of Jesus himself, which brings us to the second point, the redeemed covenant. Resolution. We see this in verses 6 through 21. They make it there to Jerusalem. We see that the apostles and the elders were gathered together. To consider this matter. What's interesting here is it's not just the apostles like it was back in Acts 6 when they had that disagreement. But you start to see the elders of Jerusalem are included. What does this show? It shows the apostles are starting to hand the faith down faithfully to other leaders in the church. So the apostles and the elders, they're handing off their responsibility. They're gathered together and they're debating and they're going back and forth. And you've got to imagine that it's heated and that people have all different kinds of opinions. And finally Peter says enough is enough. He stands up. And what does he say? Friends, this is the last time we hear from Peter in the book of Acts. It's the last time that we hear from him, aside from his letters, in the history of the church. What's Peter's last words? Look back there at them in 7 through 11. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. He's not being prideful in saying that. He's just stating the facts that by the mouth, that by my mouth, the Gentile should hear the word of the gospel, the good news and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness himself to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction. This was the issue that Peter had to deal with back in 10 and 11. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is important for us to see here. We see that that Peter realizes that it has not been him. And this is something he realized early on and he needs them to realize. It wasn't him who just showed up and said, Hey Cornelius, let me tell you about Jesus. No, it was God who made the choice. It was God who brought in the vision. It was God who called him. It was God who spoke through them. It was God who freely chose whom He would redeem, with the Holy Spirit being the sign and the mark of who He was redeeming. We see there in verse 9, He made no distinction. Why? Because it is God who cleanses the heart. Now whether you realize it or not, this idea of cleansing the heart is circumcision language. We actually see this back in Deuteronomy. Moses brings this up in Deuteronomy 10, 15 and 16. He says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. The God of of the Bible is choosing whom he's going to save here. You above all people as you are this day. Okay, so what? Circumcise therefore the foreskins of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. See, friends, what we see here pictured, and I won't get on my Baptist hobby horse too much here, but what we see here is that circumcision in the flesh, in the Old Testament, on the eighth day that a baby boy was born, represented something bigger that was to come. It was a circumcision of the heart, the cleansing of the heart, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the belief that would come not just among us men, among women as well. Isn't it interesting that the circumcision sign that could only be applied to males was pointing ahead to something that would include males and females? That all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ have had our hearts changed, transformed. They were hard and like stone. But the spirit comes and he makes them hearts of flesh that can receive the words of God, that delight in his law and that delight in obedience because we've been saved. This is what Peter himself brings up there in verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? So Peter first draws us back to God. God did this. And here you are putting God to the test. But then he draws it back to them as well. So remember, devotion to God, relationship with each other. Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. He calls them what they are. That neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What is that yoke? It is the yoke of the law. Pastor David got at this a couple weeks ago in Romans 7. That the law is holy. That God gave the law. But its demands cannot be met. It cannot be kept by sinful people. The law does nothing but expose our sin. And Peter realizes this full well growing up a good Jewish boy. And so we get to really a gospel foundation. Notice he's talked about the Father's work, the spirit's coming, and then in verse 11, he brings Jesus right up. He says, "But we believe. It's almost a, a statement of faith, like we said this morning, We believe. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ." And he doesn't stop there, just as they will. Friends, Paul himself gets at this very idea in the book of Galatians. Many believe, and I would stand with them, that Paul wrote the book of Galatians, his letter to the Galatian churches, before this happened. But this is what he says himself in Galatians 5, 2-6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. Go look up what that means in the Greek. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything But only faith working through love. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what I want you to hear from me, children, listen. Salvation cannot come to you by being a good little boy or a good little girl. You cannot save yourselves by being good enough. Because sin is buried deep in your heart. You need God to do the work. That only He can do. And friends, the hope of the gospel is that He has done it. When Jesus was upon the cross and He cried, It is finished. He had fulfilled it all. He had obeyed every dot and tittle of the law. He had obeyed every work that was required of us. He did it all. And the righteousness that He achieved is given to us when we place our sin upon Him and turn to Him. This is what we desire for all of those who are far from Christ. We don't desire works of the law, we don't desire religiosity. We do desire maturity. But we know that only comes through believing in Jesus more and more and more. Well, friends, let's continue. Paul and Barnabas stand up and they they speak into the silence of the people. If you all were there, you would have been quiet too after Peter said that. Everyone's reminded that God is doing something through Jesus Christ, not through them. And Paul and Barnabas talk about God's work through them and among the Gentiles, and the signs and the wonders. They support Peter's claim. And then James stands up. So James has been made the de facto leader. This is James, not the brother of John, but James, the, the, the biological brother of Jesus Christ, the one who gives us the letter of James. James himself, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church, who would have had every reason to require the Gentiles to be circumcised because he is the Jew among Jews at this point. He is the lead pastor of the Jewish Christians. What does he say? Does he defend his own people? By no means. He backs up Peter here using his his Hebrew name, Simeon, Simon. And this was a big deal. James could have went the other direction, but he doesn't. And instead, he uses the Bible. This is what I love. James is just a simple Bible exposition. He just opens the Bible up and he says, listen, the prophets agree to this. The prophets declare. And you can go back this week and just look through the prophets at how they speak of God saving the nations. He particularly picks up Amos, which is an awesome prophet that enough of us don't read and study. He uses Amos 9, 11, and 12. But he knows how all the prophets agree. The whole Old Testament really is about God's redeeming a unified people for his name. This is what Isaiah 43 gets out. A people for his name from the Jews and the Gentiles. Go back and read Isaiah 43 this week. The first half talks about the Jews, second half talks about the Gentiles, and throughout a people for my name. So in light of this, James gives this call. He really gives two calls that bring unity through actions on both sides. Okay, So this is what I want you to see as we move to this last section. Number one, He calls on the Jews. He says, Jewish people do not burden the Gentiles by requiring these things that the gospel makes void. That's what he says there in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who turn to God. So so Jews don't do that. Then he has a second call that that can, can be missed here to the Gentiles. There in verse 20. But you should write to them, the Gentiles, to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What is he saying here? He's saying that, hey, with that said, Jews, don't burn the Gentiles. There are also some things that pagan Gentile people do in their pagan Gentile worship that could easily be translated over into, okay, we're worshiping the one true God, so let's keep doing those old things that we did. Those things are not helpful. Those things are not sensitive to your Jewish brothers and sisters. And, and they're not true worship of God, like, like sexual immorality. He's talking about temple prostitutes there. talking about eating food that has been strangled, that still has the blood in it. And there's all these Old Testament things that, that the Jewish people would have probably wanted to just maintain to, to ensure their devotion to God. And James says to the Gentiles, hey, don't just be done with that stuff. Those, 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 those little things that they are from your old life, Don't go with them anymore. And so the application then is together. Taking up these two things. They're going to create a community. That's going to help one another through service. It's going to help one another through service. And so Peter exposes how God deals with us in grace. And James exposes how the covenant community ought to deal with one another in grace. Over the non-essentials. So we have this new covenant community of mutual love for God. Leading to sensitivity in our life together. Friends if you're looking for some practical application. As I read this final portion of the passage. There it is. That our love for God. Should lead to our love for one another. That our devotion to God. Should lead to our devotion to one another. That our worship of God. Should lead to our sensitivity and caring. And bearing one another's burdens. Together. Which brings us to the final passage. The final portion of the passage. Let me read this for us. Then it seemed good. picking up, verse twenty-two. Sorry, Acts fifteen, twenty-two. Here we go. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church there in Jerusalem to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Okay, so here we have in the New Testament our first letter, at least it comes up in, in our Bibles. men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they were proclaimers of the word of God, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So we see two things really emerge in this final passage. We see a writing of a letter, and the delivering of that letter. Now I don't want to rehash everything that's in the letter because it's everything that we just saw in that redeemed resolution, wasn't it? But in this encouraging epistle... We see that the apostles and the elders come to choose what they're going to do. They come to one accord and they send Paul and Barnabas with a few other men to deliver this letter. I love the way that they talk about Paul and Barnabas here. As if to say, hey, yeah, what those guys thought back in the beginning, those guys who have risked, li- risked their lives for the gospel. Yeah, those guys are good. They're with us. We're all on the same team here. They send this community to community correspondence, if you will. You see that it's red. Not just Antioch, but Syria and Cilicia. This this is becoming a global problem. They want to cut it off before it branches out into other places. And the key term in this letter that I want you to see that's used three different times in verses 22, 25, and 28 is that it seemed good. It seemed good. Sending a double witness of the letter and the men seemed good. They found biblical warrant for that back in Deuteronomy. Based on Peter, Paul and Barnabas and James, their judgment seems good. In verse 25, they have wisdom and discernment. And then in 28, the easing of the burden seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them. They had, had a Godward consideration. All of this supports the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas while also helping move this covenant community toward maturity. So what does it do for us, friends? Well, I hope it makes us like the last few verses of this passage in 30 through 35. I hope it makes us the kind of people who love God for the work that he has done in saving us. But it also makes us people who love one another well. I hope it makes us people like the ones that Paul calls the Galatian church to in Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, sexuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. You thought he hit them all, but there's more things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit. Why does the Spirit need to give us fruit? Because we need to know how to live together, and we need to know how to worship God together. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. So friends, how is your relationship with God? Do you see it fundamentally based on how you perform, creating a law for yourself? Do you see your entrance into the family of God as something that you accomplished, like circumcision? Or do you see that it is the Father who sent forth Jesus that we might be saved by grace? Do you see that Jesus was cut off in His death, taking on the ultimate circumcision of being cut away in sin? Not his own, but ours. And that through his death you have been made whole and received the Spirit. And how does your relationship with God shape the relationships with those around you? Do you lean into the work of God and one another when it's conflict and disagreement? Do you lean into one another when you're struggling and needing help? If you're here and you're not a member, are you taking up the great gift of, of a diverse people unified in the gospel? And if you're here and you're a member of this church, let me ask you it this way. Are you surrounding yourself with the people that God has gifted you here? And how are you doing at giving yourself away to build up and care those who are around, for those who are around you? Friends, let us not neglect such a rich salvation in Christ. Not one that demands obedience before love, but calls for complete devotion because of all that God has done for us in Christ and equipped us for in the spirit. As Christians, we do not obey to be saved, but rather we obey because we have received salvation through the cross of Christ. May God give us all eyes to see that because of what Jesus has done, we are free. Free from the penalty and free from the power of sin. We can find delight and joy in worshiping God with our whole lives to do it together. May it be so among us. Let us pray. Father God, I do pray and I ask, Lord, that if there are any here who do not know the love of Christ, not received circumcision of the heart, the cleansing of you, God. I pray and ask that you would do that in this very moment. That they would seek out friends or or the pastors after the service and desire to know more about what it means to start following Jesus. God, I pray and I ask that we, as Christians, would know how to disciple and encourage one another. That we would give ourselves away to one another out of a spiritual act of worship. And God, as we prepare to take this supper now, Lord, we pray and we ask that you would unite us again afresh this morning around the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we do pray. Amen.